welcome to the History Shows Us podcast. I'm your host, Letty, a historian with a passion to speak truth and teach about history, racial justice, and more, making the critical connections between the past and present. Seeing the bigger picture is so necessary in our society today. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back. Y'all want to know something? Every time I say welcome back, I think of the song that's titled Welcome Back by Mace. I think it came out in 2004. Oh, I was in 10th grade maybe. Anyway, if you've never heard the song, you should listen to it and watch the music video. (laughs) But for real, I am happy that you decided to tune in to another episode to hear some truths about history, connect some dots with me. All of that good stuff. There has been quite a bit that's happened in the last, what, two weeks? Since my last podcast episode. And, I mean, last week we had Derek Chauvin's verdict read, which I was honestly sitting on my couch anticipating this, just waiting anxiously. Um, whenever I got the news alerts about it, I my, my body tensed up and, whew, I will say that I was relieved, right? There there was some relief for me, absolutely. That verdict was historic for different reasons. What I will also say, though, is that that was not justice. Justice would have been George Floyd still being here right now, today, with his family. What I will also say is that there are more Derek Chauvin's out there because the whole system is guilty. As soon as that verdict was read, well, actually, I think it was before the verdict was read, but I didn't find out until afterwards. What about Micaiah Bryant? And how she was killed by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio. And so, yes, I understand that people were so happy, right, regarding the Derek Chauvin verdict for various reasons. And I'm not someone who's going to tell people how they should feel in a moment like that, to be honest with you. But what I will say is that I didn't feel the immense amount of joy, right? I I just didn't. Because for me, I was like, yeah, but the whole system is still out here murdering black and brown people. And I'm going to get into this in this podcast episode, but I just wanted to go ahead and start off with that. Also, this past weekend, we had the Oscars, and I was very happy to see a lot of black people winning these awards. I didn't watch the Oscars, but I did follow up on social media on Monday, and I'm going to say this, Chad McBoseman should have won his Oscar, may he rest in power, but my friend Fred Joseph tweeted and basically said that we are going to remember Chad McBoseman regardless. And matter of fact, let me pull up his tweet while I'm sitting right here. Fred said, we don't need the Academy to celebrate Chadwick Boseman. We are celebrating Chadwick and his tremendous performance regardless. And that is so true because I don't know about y'all, but Chadwick Boseman will always be, will always be one of the best to me. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this episode. So last week, whenever I was sitting and listening to and watching Derek Chauvin's verdict being read, right, in all three guilty charges, right, about two minutes later, what I thought was, wow, the white backlash is about to get really real. Not that it hasn't been real before. I don't don't mean that. What I mean, y'all, is... Just as much as there were so many people who were relieved and so many people who were protesting last summer, this whole year, even before last summer, protesting for black lives, so many people out here in the pandemic doing work for racial justice, for dismantling the system. So, y'all, there were also, whenever that verdict was read, 
there were so many enraged, racist white people who were just furious that Derek Chauvin was found guilty. I mean, we see white backlash throughout history. Actually, it's really the entire system. The entire system has been that. White supremacy is that. And there has been in this country a history of reactionary violence towards black people and towards brown people. But I'm specifically right now in this podcast episode going to be talking about black people and how we have collectively in this country been the receivers of this kind of violent reactionary treatment. And now, whenever I say violent, okay, yes, I literally mean violent. Like, I'm going to go through some history with you all to connect some dots for you from Reconstruction through really present day. But also know that white backlash is not always very evident, right? It's, it's not blatant right in your face every time. It's discreet. It's very discreet. And that comes in the form of laws, policies, things that you think are one way. And then you're like, oh, wait, they found a loophole through this law. They, they found this. They found that. Matter of fact, I'm also right now thinking about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. That whole book is evidence of white backlash in this country. Yes, whenever it comes to the quote unquote rights that police officers have and how the country, um, this government continuously protects them. And if you have not read that book, I know I have mentioned that several times on my podcast here. If you have not read that book, you need to read that book. And if you read that book and you can walk away and still say, oh, well, I just still still don't see an issue. You're the issue because honestly, it's always just laid out for you. Before I get into some history, I'm going to read a few sentences from James Baldwin's essay, The Price of the Ticket. He wrote this essay in 1985, which was two years before he passed away. Now, I'm going to read this to you now, and then I'm also going to go back to a piece of it at the end of this podcast episode, because I'm going to connect some dots for you. But anyway, this is what he said. But I am really saying something very simple. The will of the people or the state is revealed by the state's institutions. There was not then, nor is there now, a single American institution which is not a racist institution. And then he goes on to say, Yes, we have lived through avalanches of tokens and concessions, but white power remains white. And what it appears to surrender with one hand, it obsessively clutches in the other. And that last sentence that I just read, I'm going to read it again. And what it appears to surrender with one hand, it obsessively clutches in the other. Y'all, that's what I feel is extremely applicable to the Derek Chauvin verdict. Because history shows us that over and over and over again. Like I said, I will be coming back to this, but I do want to go into the history of the word backlash, particularly white backlash. So the word backlash actually gained popularity in the summer of 1963, whenever John F. Kennedy was president. And he was also obviously at that time proposing enormous civil rights legislation. In response, the phrase, like I just said, white backlash emerged, and the word or phrase basically came to stand for this rebellion where white people with relative societal power um, perceived themselves as victimized by what they described as overly aggressive black people demanding equal rights. Sound familiar? Right. Again, this is 1963. So a New York Times columnist named Tom Wicker wrote, Backlash is nothing more nor less than white resentment of Negroes. So yeah, the term backlash basically became synonymous with the aggressive white reaction to the civil rights legislation and black people moving about more freely 
Now, it didn't just start, though, with 1963. That's not, that's not what happened. This can be traced all, all the way back to the Reconstruction era. And for the Civil Rights Movement during that time, the word backlash quickly also became a synonym for this new and growing conservative force signifying this counter-reaction to all social movements that they decided were actually a threat to their white superiority. Does that also sound familiar? Right. Because, y'all, like I've said over and over and over again, things haven't actually changed like that. It's just we're in a different year, right? We're just in a different year. (laughs) Whenever you think about the civil rights movement, okay, and I've actually asked people this before. I'm like, what do you think of? Some people say that they imagine these images, right, of angry white people with picket signs and um, white-only signs and screaming at black people trying to go to school or pouring food or condiments or whatever it might be on black people's heads and hoses and all these things, right? So these are images that you get in your mind when you think about the civil rights movement, okay? The, the anger, the hate, the rage, uh, that's what I'm talking about, okay? Now, this is the blatant one, right? It's very similar to how I discuss racism and where people think it's just blatant. And I'm like, y'all know that there's overt and covert racism, right? It's it's all racism. It's all horrific and it's all ridiculous, but it's all racism. And so backlashes, white backlash in particular, is extremely powerful, not only because of the fury that it represents, but in the fury that it also, or sorry, in the fear that it also instills in these political leaders, okay? Even progressive political leaders. And what I mean by this fear that it instills is that this fear that it instilled in these political leaders is what also drove the racist laws and racist legislation, even by people who you may look at in history and you're like, oh, but I thought that they were for black people. Right, Cue the whole Reconstruction era, okay? Like, we can just literally trace it from from there. And um, in a June 1963 article, what one reporter called white panic was driven by fears of favoritism and special privileges for black people, okay, that white workers would be forced out of their jobs to make way for Negroes. That's a direct quote from that article. And also in, I'm trying to look at, I have all these notes written down because I didn't want to misquote anything. (laughs) If you've listened to me long enough, you know that I'm all about like getting it exactly what was said. But in April 1964, in a Wall Street Journal article, this Republican, okay, this Republican politician from the Midwest said, many of my people, white people, think the Negroes want to take over the country. Now, mind you, this was still before the Civil Rights Act was even passed. This is before the Civil Rights Act. This is before the Voting Rights Act. Okay, this is June 1963 and then April 1964. Granted, 1964 is whenever the first Civil Rights Act was passed. But the point of me sharing this with y'all is that these are the same ideas and things that we see right now, that we hear right now in 2021 America. At one point in 1964, some white people were asked about their opinion regarding the Civil Rights Act, right? And do y'all know, some white people actually thought that the act included things like forced sales of housing to black people, and that forced sales of housing to black people meant that then white people would be driven out of their homes and would then not have anywhere to live. Yes, mm-hmm. like that was their reaction to the Civil Rights Act even being proposed. But also they made all of that up. Ain't nowhere in the Civil Rights Act does it say that, okay? But white people continued to then threaten and intimidate black people when they moved to predominantly white areas or even, oh, I don't know, didn't move to predominantly white areas, lived in black neighborhoods, 
okay? And you had white people who would go and then intimidate, threaten them in their own neighborhoods. Like, that was the reaction, okay, which was rooted in lies. There was no truth to that. And this is the same thing that we have seen, okay, definitely the last six years in this country. We saw it through the entire presidency of 45, but it didn't just start with 45, right? Like these kind of reactions didn't just start there. These kind of lies not just start there. And you best believe, okay, that the Derek Chauvin verdict, okay, and white people who were on Derek Chauvin's side seeing one of their own being convicted is bringing out some of these same feelings again. Like there is no, there's just no doubt about that. You're probably like, Letty, but do you have proof? No, I don't have proof in front of me, like as far as I saw it last week, but I do have it whenever I do this work as a historian and I connect these dots because unless you pay attention to the patterns, unless you actually learn the history and you choose to see it for what it is instead of what you want it to be, then you're not going to connect the dots. All right, so now I'm going to show some examples of white backlash throughout history, starting with the Reconstruction era. Well, actually starting after slavery, but Reconstruction started very soon after that. Anyway, all right, so slavery, quote unquote, ended. I say that because it really didn't end. There was the re-enslavement of black people, but I'm going to get to that point in just a second. So you have the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, Okay. 13th Amendment is actually an entire loophole, which is directly connected to the re-enslavement of black people. You also, right, had black men were, were given the right to vote. And we know how that ended. That was not, these things did not actually happen that way. And the Reconstruction Era, I actually did a podcast series about this year before last. But anyway, um, in a nutshell, Reconstruction Era was... People say that it was a failure, like, oh, but it just kind of failed. No, actually, white people were just really angry, and they decided to sabotage the whole thing, and right, that's that's what happened. Even the white people that it was going to benefit, because poor white people actually were going to get some benefits from Reconstruction-era policies, but they were like, actually, we're going to vote against ourselves and not get things like... I don't know, funding and things like that for, uh, yeah, anyway, we're going to vote against ourselves and instead we're going to choose to murder black people and to fight black people because they have rights and we just can't have that because we don't have them and we don't own them anymore and we're angry about that. So now what can we do? Oh, here's what we can do. We can re-enslave them and we can create this whole convict leasing system in this whole labor camp system, right? That's what we can do. And we can connect it to these huge institutions, okay, these major companies, which, oh, I don't know, a century later are going to be huge banks and um, huge establishments on Wall Street. Anyway, that's a whole other um, history lesson and story. But white backlash during the Reconstruction era was real. It was not like they just said, oh, okay, well, it's the law of the land now and we just we just have to let it go. Absolutely not. That has never happened in the history of this country. And y'all want to know something? People really think that. People really think that because something is a law or a policy that people are just going to fall in line. Are you kidding me? That is it's literally not even how people work. On a foundational level, that is not how people work whenever it comes to something or different things in their life that they are upset about. In 1867, actually, you have these Southern white people who were actually very divided. I wouldn't say very divided. Actually, I'm taking the word very out. They were divided in some ways. Not necessarily because they were like, we need to give black people their rights. Not like they were all trying to be genuine. Let's, let's not get carried away here. But Southern whites, some of them were saying, like, we've, we've got to go out. We've got to mobilize ourselves. We've got to go out and outvote these black people. 
And so also a year before that in 1866, you had the emergence of the KKK. Like literally this country said, hmm, we actually are so angry that we're going to launch a white terrorist organization to be violent towards, to instill fear in, um, and to brutalize and kill black people. That's how angry we actually are. And you might be saying, but did the federal government allow that? Yes, yes. Why do we ask questions like that? Yes, yes, they, yes, they did. And yes, they knew about it. Um, like you had the senators and the governors and the mayors and the sheriffs and the cops and who were a part of the Klan. So, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the KKK, a whole U.S.-born terrorist organization, which was a huge example of white backlash to free black people. And you may also be thinking like, oh, okay, well, if the South was divided, um, well, then why didn't other people take a stand against the violence? Oh, what a wonderful question that we're still asking in 2021 America. Fantastic. So white society was running in the direction of what can we do to uphold white supremacy? What can we do to make sure that we get people in office, we want office to then create these laws and to pass this legislation to ensure that white supremacy remains. And at this time, Republicans and Democrats were switched. So Republicans today would have identified most of them as Democrats at this time. Okay. So even if you were part of the Republican Party back then, which was the party, again, that was more progressive uh, towards black people, you could still be threatened into being silent. You could still be threatened into not voting for this person or this or that because y'all money runs everything. Come on, money didn't just start running everything in this country. And so you still had that back then. You had that, but that, okay, capitalism was a weapon that white people use continuously against their own people. Okay, that's just, but today we just, not, not we. Many people continue to think that um, the whole system serves them. And yes, white people in this country do benefit directly from the system, which was created to benefit them. Okay. But what I mean, okay, if, you, we, if we break that down and we look at all of the layers in that, okay, because there are layers and everything. When you look at all the layers in that, white backlash, okay, was actually detrimental to majority of the country. So yeah, basically Reconstruction era, you had these things that were proposed to help black people and the federal government was like, actually, yikes, we're getting attacked by these state governments and let's just not anymore, right? So yeah, that whole phrase, like give me liberty or give me death, yeah. So they took that literally and they're like, actually, liberty would mean not giving black people anything. So you had lynchings. You had convict leasing, like I mentioned before. And now by convict leasing, I do not mean this system where black people committed all of these crimes and then um, they were justified and they were proven guilty and then um, you had people just um, hire out these prisoners. No, 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 no. That's not how common policing worked. I highly encourage you to read the book Slavery by Another Name. That is not what common policing was. You had black people who were just getting taken and just put into um, these prisons, okay? These horrific, horrific situations um, or prisons, I'm sorry. And often there wasn't even a trial there wasn't even a trial there there wasn't anything they didn't even do anything it was just money it was the money it was the power it was like the the white backlash to losing their property okay was to take them and basically create slavery again another example of white backlash were these civil rights acts that were passed um before 1900 between 1865 and 1900 which were overturned by the supreme court Yes, overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. And then they basically said, actually, we said we were going to do this for y'all, but we're going to take it back. We're going to overturn it because uh, not so sure about that. You also had separate but equal, 
Um, Plessy versus Ferguson is a um, famous 1896 Supreme Court case where white people were just so angry, okay, um, about black people or someone who had one drop of Negro blood uh, riding a train with them that they just decided to, yeah, just, okay, well, we're just going to create all of these Jim Crow laws and we're going to actually make them up as we go. They're not written down anywhere necessarily, but if you disobey one of them, then you could get murdered, um, you could get raped, you could get assaulted, you could get lynched, you could get tortured and you can get mutilated you can get dismembered but we're not going to actually tell you we're actually it's, it's just going to be a thing where if one day i am just really upset i'll just decide mm, that black person just did something really bad i it's not in me a black woman i mean like a white person um and yeah so you had that happen uh, you also had race massacres which there is a long long list of those why race massacres? People have asked me that before too. I'm like, is that really a question? Because if that's the question for you, then you don't actually understand the level of racism and white supremacy and evil in this country. So you had race massacres, which basically happened because black people were building homes and had businesses and were flourishing. God forbid we do that. So they were like, okay, we're just going to kill them. Um, we're going to slaughter them and we're then going to be able to take the government or whatever we do because that happened here in Wilmington, North Carolina. We're going to take that government, which is then then the state legislature is going to be forever altered and no one's going to do anything about it. You also had um, white women, okay, who were extremely furious because they could no longer be these uh, brutal and fury-filled um, women who owned enslaved people. So they were mad. And they're out here asking for their rights for voting, right, and all these things. And, you know, you were taught that history, and the book They Were Her Property by Stephanie E. Jones Rogers completely refutes all of that. Uh, and, yeah, so you had white women who were like, okay, what can we do? Because we're really angry because we don't have our independence. Because white women, yes, they could not um, necessarily get a divorce. Like there, there were things, right, that white women couldn't do. But what they could do, what they could do was own enslaved people. And if there were disputes about owning enslaved people between them and their husband, that could lead to separation. That can lead to divorce. There's a lot that goes into that when it comes to the legality of property, okay, and the management of enslaved people. That's the whole thing. But yeah, so you had white women who were angry and were mad because black men got the right to vote before them. So what did they do? They said, okay, what can we create? So white women decided to paint themselves as innocent. And of course, white men, patriarchy upheld that and started creating these lies about black men being rapists and beasts, which went well with the racist stereotypes that already existed during slavery. And these lies cost hundreds of thousands of black men their lives. Life in the South in particular, uh, after slavery was horrendous, you had lies that were told about sharecropping, um, black people, black families were basically, they signed things that they were not aware of and they were lied to by the same white people who used to own them and lied to by the state governments, lied to by, um, by the local governments, and they were basically just enslaved again. And whenever um, black people would try to flee, okay, like leave the South, um, they would be met with violence at train stations. They would have to sneak out because um, they were afraid of being um, being caught by police officers, by deputized white people, um, who would then say, oh, well, you aren't supposed to be leaving. You're, you're still indebted to so-and-so, so-and-so. And, -so, so -and, -so. and um, there was violence that happened with, with that. Uh, so there was still this issue with bodily autonomy and moving about freely um, because y'all of, again, um, white people and white supremacy and this idea of, well, we have to still remain because if not, then we're going to have everything taken away from us. Uh, so the answer is going to continuously be to choose violence, literally. You also had 
Confederate monuments, which were erected. No, they were not erected after the Civil War. Many people think that they were erected right after the Civil War and all these things, like, like during the Reconstruction era. No, they actually were erected between 1900 and the 1930s. And then you also had more that were erected um, between 1950s and the 1970s. Now, there is no coincidence with that. This is something, too, that most people, what I found, have not connected is the fact that whenever the KKK was deemed unconstitutional, I'm making air quotes. I do that so often whenever I'm talking about history because the lies. Um, But the KKK was deemed unconstitutional at least, if I'm not mistaken, three times, even before like 1963. Um, And each time they just somehow managed to be out here, of course, because America. And 1900s to the 1920s is when you saw a second wave of the KKK. 1950s to 1960s, you saw a third wave. Now, Confederate monuments, more of them were built during those years. That is no coincidence. Imagine the amount of terror that was reigned upon black people. You also, in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, um, you started to see the eugenics movement. You started to see um, people migrating to this country um, from Europe, um, from Asian countries. Yes, but what you also saw was the assimilation of whiteness by people from European countries. Now, assimilation of whiteness, sorry, assimilation into whiteness, a lot goes into that as well. I've mentioned that a few times too on previous podcast episodes, but the privileges, okay, that that gave to people who maybe before would have identified as Irish or maybe would would have identified as Jewish because what happened, okay, was white people here in America decided like, oh, wow, okay, we have more people coming over here. We should band together with them. That did not happen that easily. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but over like two or three decades, it absolutely did, which is why you have people like James Baldwin who wrote things like essays titled Negroes are, are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. There's reasons behind that. Um, You also have books like Whiteness of a Different Color, which talk about the assimilation of European immigrants into white culture and what that meant about power, um, white power, white supremacy, simply because of your skin color had nothing to do with where you came from, okay? And I mentioned lynchings before, but y'all, there are reported right? Almost 5,000 lynchings in this country, in history. Know that that number is only the ones that were reported, okay? Only the ones that were reported. If you have not looked at the Equal Justice Initiative's website, okay, and read their lynching report, um, I highly advise you to do that. If you have not looked at, they have a database that they've um, that like they just continue to update, where they um, have all of the lynchings that occurred in different states, in different cities, different towns. I encourage you to look at that as well. I encourage you to also read some of these stories. These these weren't just black men and black women that were getting lynched. These were children also, children. Um, and so that's why today we talk about. Children like Micaiah Bryant. Um, and my spirit truly feels that so heavily because I've, too often it's looked at like this is new. Y'all, this, this ain't new. This ain't new. Um, like Ta-Nehisi Coates says, the cameras are new. Social media that we have is um, new. But yeah, so... Um, white backlash, lynchings, and lynchings that were done on Sundays after church, and you would go with your family to a picnic, and you would allow your children to also help with the lynching. You would you would pose with the body, with the burning body, with the mutilated body. You would pose with it. You would then take the body, and you would put it on black people's church grounds. Um or put it in the town to use as an example to, to warn white, to warn black people. This is the level of the white backlash. And also I'm not even going into the extensive and um, countless laws, policies, court cases that 
did nothing as far as protecting black people. Okay, so now I'm gonna go on to the Great Migration. And many of you probably heard of the Great Migration. There were technically like three waves of the Great Migration. Um, you had a wave at the beginning of the 1900s, then you had another one um, after World War One, um, beginning of World War Two. It's like that whole period is like one. And then the third was actually in the 50s and the 60s. Interesting because um, my dad was part of the third wave of the Great Migration because he left North Carolina and he went to the North in 1963. And I was like, hey, dad was part of that. Um, and why did he leave? Well, racism. Okay. Not that he was going anywhere where racism also didn't exist because, y'all, racism wasn't just in the South, isn't just in the South. It was everywhere. And let's just be clear about that. So me talking about all this history with, like, the Reconstruction Era, race massacres, Confederate monuments, I want you to be very well aware of the fact that this is not just the South. It is not. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. This it, these were things happening in the North. The KKK was very prevalent in Detroit, Michigan, like and in Ohio and in Pennsylvania. Like this wasn't just the South. It was you can look at it more blatantly in the South, but know that racism was everywhere. White supremacy was everywhere. Violence towards black people. This this white backlash was everywhere. So anyway, the Great Migration. Yeah, you had black people who were fleeing the South because of the horrors that still existed. Now, they're fleeing to the west and to the north, and, and some actually fleed further south to Mexico. But what you saw, okay, were um, these, like, uh, restrictions, right, um, upon black people in the west and, and then in the north. You saw places where they could not live, places where they were not allowed to work, um, they were, as Elizabeth, sorry, as, um, not Elizabeth, wow, Isabel Wilkerson <laughs> says, um, there was a kinder mistress, a kinder mistress was in the North and in the West, and, um, yeah, so you see that happening, you see, um, black women, black men, black children who are still uh, being victims of police brutality, you still see, just, there's just so much, there's just so much, and then, you also around this time, you have cars, okay, that are coming onto the scene. You have the highways being built and paved and all of this. And so you have travel happening. And I've talked about the Green Book. Um, that is actually a research project that I'm working on personally um, with Wilmington, North Carolina's history, because it's actually never been written before. But anyway, uh, I um, realized just what the Green Book represented beyond this travel guide. It was a survival guide and it was a survival guide because of white backlash to black people moving more freely throughout this country and no that travel guide was not just okay if i just drive here i'm gonna be good no there were still there were still so many anxieties and fears for black people who were deciding to travel to go visit family or whatever it may have um been and whenever you had this happening, you had more sundown towns being discovered. Sundown towns are places where black people were not allowed to be after dark, after the sun went down. Contrary to popular belief, guess what? They still exist. They still exist in 2021 America. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Now, thing is, you're probably like, oh, but are there signs at places? No, because see, those work the same way the Jim Crow laws work. You just didn't know sometimes. People could just make it up. You could just be in a place and there's no sign. There's no sign that says, um, don't let the sun set on you here or something to that nature. And you could just be there um, after dark, had no idea. Next thing you know, you're being met with a mob of angry white people who want to kill you and your family. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or you were just passing through, driving through, because see, whenever black people traveled and the Green Book didn't have just a ton of locations all the time, it wasn't like you're just on Highway 17 or, I don't know, Interstate 95 um, today and you have all these places where you could stop. No, it's like you could go through 75, 85, 300 miles um, with no place to stop, no safe place to stop. And so you would have to drive through the night or, or, or something like that. And so what if you pass through a place that you weren't welcome, where, where you weren't welcome? Well, you could suffer those consequences. Then you also 
moving on along, you also had civil rights movement, obviously backlash with that. And I'm going through that. Um, so I'm not even going to repeat some of that. Um, and then you had backlash toward the black power movement. You, uh, with the civil rights movement in the 1950s, the backlash that we saw that was state sanctioned violence the most was the FBI's um, creation of the counterintelligence program, which is called COINTELPRO. You've probably seen it abbreviated before. If you haven't, it's um, abbreviated as COINTELPRO. And it was a, um, an, an overt and covert um, program that J. Edgar Hoover decided to unleash because white people were angry that black people were just asking for basic humanity and human rights and civil rights. And so they were like, okay, well, what can we do to stop this? Okay, we can infiltrate these different groups like SNCC, like CORE, like the Black Panther Party. Um, I mean, we just had a whole movie about um, Fred Hampton and William O'Neill and Judas and the Black Messiah. That is not made up. That is not made up. Okay, um, like that is real history. And so you had that happen. You had it where out of nowhere you had these bombs and schools and little children, little black children getting killed. And you had all of this happening. You, you had death threats. You had so much going on that was the product of white backlash. And then just to go back for a minute to the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case, you had white backlash to that. One huge example um, a very blatant example was Emmett Till's murder. Um, in the book, The Blood of Emmett Till by Timothy Tyson, there is a quote by one of the white men who murdered Emmett Till. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, this is going to teach those N-words to not go to school with us. You also had black children who would be walking home from school and who would be victims of sexual violence from police officers, from sheriffs, from random white men, um, Yes, that happened very, very often. Um, during the Freedom Summer of 1963, I did a podcast episode about June Johnson. I encourage you to go back and listen to that one if you have not. I did that last year. I talk about her experience, also Fannie Lou Hamer's. And these are just some of the experiences, you all. And I want you to know that whenever you're reading history, just because you're reading maybe about one or two people or maybe five or six people, that doesn't mean that that's all that happened. That's not, that's never all that happened. Just like today, whenever we hear about a black person who was, um, the victim of police brutality, who was, who was a fatal victim of police brutality, um, I also am like, yeah, well, there's a, I also heard about this other person, like a local person or this or that, or there's so many other examples too that are going on. It's just that what we see sometimes are like Micaiah Bryant's name, right? We see George Floyd's name. We see Adam Toledo's name. We see just different names of like black and brown people, right? Who are the victims of the system that is working the way that it was it was created to work. But that doesn't mean that you don't always, I mean that you don't also know about, right? Other videos that are shared on social media where when you see other acts of violence towards people um, that are state sanctioned, right? So think about that, but put it in like pre-1970, right? So that's that's the connection that I, in the, the thinking, right, that I do, like those are the connections that I make, um, that we're seeing it now. And can we only imagine how it was then? I, and I read it, right? I, I read the primary sources. I read, there's so much. And it's just, it's very easy to think that because there's only three or four names listed in a, history section that that's all that was never all it's what we're seeing right now it's not just a few black people okay it's all of us that are collectively affected by this racist system whether all of us identify with that or not that's a whole different conversation because you have the Candace Owenses of like the world and other people okay but what I mean is like history shows us that this isn't new
whenever you read about, hear about, or watch things regarding the crack epidemic and drugs being put into the black community, know that that was also absolutely white backlash. Yes, it was. And maybe you haven't thought about it in that way, but putting drugs into the black community contributed to the criminalization of black people, which is the same criminalization of black people, which justified enslavement, which justified convict leasing, which justified, yeah, so much throughout history, okay? It also went well with the racist stereotypes, okay? About black men, about black women, about black people um, not wanting to quote unquote do better for themselves. Again, these are lies, but you had drugs put into the black community. Now, someone listening is probably like, I mean, maybe. No, there is no maybe with this. There is, there is no maybe. There is no perhaps that wasn't really what the intention was. It was what the intention was. It absolutely was. You saw white backlash during the women's um, liberation movements in the 1970s and 1980s. You're probably like, oh, but I've seen pictures of white women and black women together. I'm sure that you have. Good. However, on the other side of that, there are also images of white people who were angry that black women were still demanding, okay, rights for themselves as black women, rights for themselves as women, protections against racism, protections against racism in the workplace, all of these things, okay? Which then connects directly to the same issues with the suffragist movement, the white suffragist movement, okay? Of the late 1800s, early 1900s. There's a direct connection there. You saw white backlash to the emergence of rap and hip hop. Yeah, you probably didn't think about that one, did you? Mm-hmm. An emergence that saying that that's the music that um, thugs listen to. That is the music that's destroying the black mind. And that's why we have to be sure that we contain them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are things that happened and things that were actually said. And to then jump from the 80s and 90s to 2015. Um, I mean, I could go on and on even with those years between, but just look at MAGA, okay, in the previous president's presidency. That sounded redundant, but whatever. <laughs> Y'all get what I'm saying, right? And like the, the white backlash to this country having a black president for eight years and the evidence of the lens that white supremacy will go to and that people will then continue to still say, no, but only if people complied. Oh, well, people are just expressing themselves. Oh, people are just using their um, their constitutional rights. Oh, people are just exercising their First Amendment rights, right? There's always something. There's always something to justify. And there always will be because that's how white supremacy culture works. That's how America works. That's how the system operates. And so whenever I say that the system is working the way that it was intended to work, y'all, I don't just mean the criminal injustice system. I mean the white power structure system in this country. So yeah, those are just some examples. And that was actually, all of those are very umbrella examples because there's so much to go underneath each one regarding white backlash. But I hope that this honestly helped you just connect some dots. And the white backlash that we're going to see, okay, after this Derek Chauvin verdict, we've already started seeing it. But you're going to see more policing. You're, you're going to see more police violence. You're going to see at some point, I don't know when it's going to happen, but you're going to see some local laws, some state laws about with protections for police officers. You're going to see it. You're going to see it because <laughs> that is what this country does. And it's very similar to what happened in Georgia last year, right? Like we were very, I'm still overjoyed about Georgia's wins back, back in the fall, but you see what's happening now in Georgia and the voter suppression laws that are trying to be passed? Right. That's how it works. And that's actually pretty obvious to most of us. Somehow to people, it's still not. But, you, you know, racism prevails. But anyway, yeah. So just be prepared for the backlash um, 
it's it's not going anywhere. And just because we have Biden and Harris in the White House, y'all, those same people who voted for 45, um, the same people who say things like all lives matter and blue lives matter, they haven't gone anywhere. They're still here. They're still here. And so that's why now is not the time to loosen your grip. Now is not the time to say, all right, okay, we've gotten past the um, Derek Chauvin verdict because we're actually not past the sentencing yet. I make that point. But now is not the time to say, all right, we're, we're past this and we've been protesting about this or people have been protesting about this. Now we can take a break. You cannot take a break because black lives still matter. There are no breaks. There are no breaks whenever you live in a racist country. There are no breaks. So please keep that in mind. And I don't mean just keep it in mind, like remember it every now and then. Keep it in the forefront of your mind because I do not have the privilege to not think about that. That's all for this episode. Please do share, subscribe, review, rate my podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. If you're not already following the podcast on Instagram, please do that. It's at History Shows Us Podcast. I'll have that in the show notes. Also, be sure to follow me on Instagram at sincerely.letty. You can also subscribe to my Patreon to support the work that I'm doing. That means so much to me, you all. Um, and I'm greatly appreciative of those of you who have been supporting me. Um, I'm also, I have said this before, but I truly am also always moved whenever someone messages me and just says that like my podcast or my Patreon webinars or my posts have helped them to see things differently in this country. That does not get lost on me. And I just want you all to know that. So thank you so much. And as always, until next time.